Artsville, Artsville, the happening town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, from Asheville town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, feeling mountain high and inspiring North Carolina. That's where you'll find us, amazing artists and designers. Oh yeah, Artsville from Asheville. Mary and Louise, hey there. Hey Scott. Hey Scott. Hey, it's Artsville, guys. We're, we're all here. We're digging it. We're, we're back to our origins. I love it. I love it. Well, you know, this is special, right? We've got best friends here uh, talking about solving the world's problem through the power of art. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Unfortunately, this podcast may be too short to solve them all, but we'll try. <laughs> yeah, we don't have that much time, do we? <laughs> We, we we got an hour. Let's go. So, yeah, right. We'll take what we've got, right? Exactly, exactly. So what about art can make the difference? I mean, we're artists and we're art lovers and we love to drink our own Kool-Aid and believe that, you know, we've seen art change lives. We've seen art change our own lives. But what gives us the audacity to think that art can change the world? Oh, well, I'm going to start because I want to introduce Mary as not only a fabulous artist, and a very close friend, but she is, and Mike, her wonderful husband, are really responsible for Artsville and getting us together with you, Scott. And we kind of want to talk about art, friends, and activism. So Mary has changed my world considerably, and she probably doesn't know this, but I took an art class with her many moons ago, and I was very sensitive and in the moment and felt her unique energy. And then we went on to find out that we shared interest in community problems, how to solve them. We had a lot of like interests. We were both doing encaustic at the time, although I moved on to mixed media. We were both interested in, in women's issues, and all of that has brought us together in a tremendous friendship. So beyond art making all of us feel better, it has also developed into a beautiful friendship. It's been a great friendship, Louise. I thank you for acknowledging that, because we share a lot of common interests, particularly out there in our community and, and how to make our community better. I believe that Louise moved to Asheville because of some community effort that no longer exists, I'm sorry to say. So she's picking up that thread again and going with Artsville, which is very important. Part of the reason that Michael and I moved to Asheville was the art scene here. We knew there was plenty of art. Artists were treasured. And in Appalachia itself, creativity has been nurtured for a very long time. I'm, I'm not talking about bows and bunny stuff. I'm talking about functional pottery and functional woodworking and that sort of thing. So it's a long cherished thing. And I'm happy to be a big part of this community because it has nurtured my soul too. But part of the thing is I have been an activist a very long time. I made a choice after I finished art school to no longer put activism in my work. However, I think in a post-COVID world, that may change a little bit in that 
If you've seen any of my work, you know I talk about comfort, shelter, and beauty. And this is not because I just want you to be in a pretty space. I want you to take that brush to your soul and give yourself comfort, shelter, and beauty because we are lambasted every day with the stuff. And everything is polarized now. Everything. And as hardworking people, we need breaks. We just totally need a break. And that is my whole mission that I want to serve. Well, I have to chime in on that one, too, because Artsville and our partnership with you, Scott, is about one year old. And we have made so many strides in terms of our supporters and our reach and the enthusiasm that both our artists have and our community have for Artsville as a place of comfort and discussion around art. And this has been really tremendous, and it's been a learning process for me. We could not go forward with some of our new ideas for 2023 had we not had this experience, the podcast, the gallery space, the discussion groups, the blog, all those things that we put out. We've built friends close to a thousand names on our list and lots more through the podcast. But what I have discovered that is the great equalizer in all of that is exactly what Mary just said. Many of the people that come to our discussions and come to Artsville need healing. They need friendship. They need a new kind of energy. People are very, very depleted. (laughs) And it has really changed a little bit in what I see the structure of Artsville will be for the future and to the audiences we will be directed to. It's really given me much to chew on and much to program or even reprogram in 2023. Well, Louise, you touched on something that reminds me of what a friend of mine told me a while back. Good friend of mine is a medical examiner in the city of Portland, Oregon. And obviously, the tragedy that she's seen is quite something. And no matter of cause of death, she is convinced and adamant that the primary reason people die is disconnection, disconnection from community, disconnection from family, disconnection from their body, their spirits and disconnection from their friends. You know, the point is, is that things like Artsville and art more broadly provide opportunities to connect, connect the artists to their fans and collectors, uh, connect the community across neighborhoods, you name it. But arts, the arts, Artsville in Asheville and beyond provide opportunities for people to connect. And that ultimately is going to feed your spirit, feed your mind, feed your body and provide that life force that we all need. Right. Absolutely, Scott. Absolutely. And, you know, we've heard a whole lot about resilience, people languishing, that whole thing that is going on. The post-COVID world is an interesting thing. I find every day there's a new, if you will, hurdle. They're not huge, but they are hurdles. And I just think if you find a piece of art that speaks to you, it gives you peace of mind. You can take that sort of mental vacation. You know, I, I do a series called Shinrin Yoku, a walk in the forest bathing. So that you have an opportunity just to mentally go someplace and clear your mind. And I've been saying this a whole lot, like, good grief, we need relief. 
<laughs> That's a poem, Mary. Very we good. Do. <laughs> we do. Even if Peanuts wrote it. Right. <laughs> so I understand that completely. I've done my little share of forest bathing. Artsville in the past few months in particular has overwhelmed me so much that I've not been able to get in my studio and I miss it. I find that not having the spiritual connection and the soulful connection to creating has really diminished me in many ways. And I hope this rough spot doesn't last long because I want to get back to it. But I went back into my studio strictly because I hadn't worked in the arts field, only in arts administration and communication for so many years. So that's my bag. And that's why it's easier for me to do arts field and all of our programming than it is to get in the studio. But it was Mary who said, stop that. You have to give a certain number of hours every day to your studio. And she beat it into my head. And Mary, you need to beat it into my head again. (laughs) Well, you know, it was lucky for me because Michael, who we mentioned earlier, would go to work every day. I would go to work every day. I took the weekends off just like he did. So my practice has been like the job. It's a job I love. I will truly and freely admit that. But I make that practice and I can tell when I'm not doing that. I am not a happy person. I am not centered. And Michael will say to me, please go to the studio. (laughs) (laughs) Please go to your spa and get a massage. (laughs) Exactly. And by by the way, you need it. By the way, I want to take this opportunity to shout out to your Michael, aka your worst half, your husband who I adore. And by the way, let's be frank, the only reason we're connected is because of my relationship with Michael going back, oh, I don't know, circa 2007 when we met working together at Kaiser Permanente. And because of the relationship that he was so generous in developing with me, Mary and I became friends and Mary introduced uh, Louise and I. So this is a very incestuous group we have here. (laughs) We're still having fun, right? (laughs) We are. But there's another thing about all of this. So Mary and I have been involved in a lot of interesting advocacy issues as sort of non-arts related activism. Okay. So I got her interested in something called Women for Women, which is a women's giving circle here that I had been involved in already for, I think, 10 or 11 years before I suggested Mary get involved. And then through that, we went on, we focused on issues for women in Western North Carolina. But the first one we tackled was human trafficking. That was a big one. We went to the state and made some policy changes in the law. Yay, one for our team. And got them funded. That's the other thing. Not only did we change policy, we made them put the money in for it. Which had not been done before. Right, right. So that was exciting. And then Mary said, well, let's go to some Planned Parenthood things together. That's been her shtick for a long time. So I was a member, but a very quiet member of Planned Parenthood. So Mary and I started going to Planned Parenthood events. I got really excited about Planned Parenthood, started donating more money to them. 
And look how important they are today. I mean, my God, for women's issues, nothing could have surfaced as being more important than Planned Parenthood. With all of that said, and and I'm just sort of skimming the surface on our community activism here, I had a sense during COVID and during this whole political period that Mary's talking about that my 50 plus years, I'll just say 50 to give it a nice ring. I feel like I haven't accomplished anything much that I've worked like a dog. I've marched, I've donated, I've done programming, I've done events, I've done the whole gamut of community organizing. But when I turned to Artsville, which was during COVID is when we were founded, I feel like I'm doing more for the world and for Asheville and Western North Carolina now than I did when I was marching in the streets. Well, it is a frustrating time for all of us that have done this work in the past. And I have to say that it's time for us to kind of be honest about what some of these things are about. And I'm sorry, Scott, but I just have to do this. (laughs) The abortion stuff is not about babies. This is about punishing women for having sex. And as soon as we realize that's what the issue is, and that's how we have to fight it. I mean, look at what happened in Kansas. I'm not so worried about the midterms now because I think people are pissed off and they're going to come out and vote. And what is it about women's anatomy that is so fascinating to those old folks up there in Washington? Please explain that to me because they know nothing about it. They don't even know what name to call it. Ask one man up there what a vulva is. He won't know. (laughs) But he might know where to find it. I doubt it. (laughs) Well, well, Mary, you know, educate me. I'm going to play the dumb guy here. Okay. Because when I look at this issue through my dumb guy lenses or whatever, for me, I felt like the fundamental issue is about freedom and robbing women of their freedom to choose what to do with their bodies, whether we as men like it or not. Right. And that to me is what is so scary and despicable because, of course, the hypocrisy is so real because these same assholes are talking about liberty and freedom, but only if you're a straight white male, apparently. Exactly. That's exactly right. And you're exactly right. It's about the freedom because, God forbid, all of us virgins should be having sex. I mean, I don't know how you think they got babies, right? (laughs) That they want us to all be these pure virgin women and protect all these babies that they won't feed, clothe, and educate. So, It's a misnomer to say that we're protecting babies. That's just not true. Well, the issue is, Mary, I'm kind of interested to know, how do you separate all this in your work? And why now are you thinking about returning to your activism side and incorporating or reincorporating it into new works? Or am I not understanding you correctly as to where you'd like to go. Yeah, there's not a good answer to that because, you know, in the creative process, what am I going to do? I feel a big shift coming in my work. I just haven't identified it yet, but I feel it coming. I know it's there. And I think it's been brought about by this, that we have got to get codified law to protect a woman's right to choose. I have many friends that are OBGYNs and they're beside themselves. They are absolutely beside themselves. And if This is a defining moment in American history, I think. The Christian nationalism, anti-abortion stuff. We are supposed to be people who believe in freedom, and look what they're doing. Mary, you come from this from many, many years of experience. I'm sure the listening audience would like to know 
where you started your commitments to women and Planned Parenthood in particular? So I grew up in Southern California until I was 12 years old. My mother's name is Dixie, so I need you to know that she's from Alabama. And she decided she wanted to go home. So I moved to Alabama here they integrated the public schools. That sort of gives you where I was. And about a year after that, my best friend, I finally made a friend, and my best friend in high school got pregnant. And this, let's see, I graduated high school in 71, so this could have been 69 or 70, pre-legal abortion. She had a baby that was grossly disformed, and mostly because I think she had a terrible pregnancy. She was shunned. She was made fun of. It was a small town. They forced them to get married. That was just a huge mistake. And this poor little baby came out, and it couldn't even suck. She had to feed it with an eyedropper and died six weeks later. And it was just this horrible experience. And when I realized what was happening, I was still kind of torn between, did I want a Barbie doll or did I want to go on a date? So this made a big impression on me. And when abortion was first legalized, it was very clear to me that I needed to play a part in that. So tell us oh, what you did. I forget the part. Here's the part I forget to talk about. I am a registered nurse and an OBGYN nurse practitioner, and I forget that part. I haven't done it. <laughs> so well, that's only a few here. years of training and lots of money, and you just forget it. Okay, nice. Sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> so long. So I have some cred here, and I saw some pretty sad things that people would do to themselves to avoid a pregnancy. And I dedicated to not only providing safe abortion to women, but also family planning. How about a little education here? It's not that hard. And these are our bodies. We all function basically the same. Yes, we have some differences, but we function basically the same. So a little bit of education and family planning information goes a very long way. I gave that freely and I used to go to schools. If you would invite me, I would come talk to you about family planning. So. Beyond Planned Parenthood, I'd like to sort of expand on this just a little bit. So as Scott and Mary and many people know, I am visually impaired. I was born after a serious problem pregnancy on my mother's behalf. And after six and a half months of pregnancy, she gave birth to twins. And my twin brother died after 18 hours. And it has affected my vision. I've been visually impaired my entire life. And it's only now and actually through my artwork that I've actually come to terms with this a little bit more. Because when I'm in my studio, I have to constantly consider what I can and can't do. And like most things in my life, if it's a challenge, I just try harder. And I'm trying to get away from that and become more focused on what would be easiest for me to do. Like right now, I'm sewing and embroidering. Not great when you only see out of one eye. So this has brought me to something that has become a conversation with other leaders in the arts management and organization field, the nonprofit field that I have had, which is that Asheville is a healing and spiritual community. We have been the place where people come to the mountains. Mary's going forest bathing. Other people come <laughs> to the mountains of Asheville because it is healing. And also when you do it, Scott, you were here. 
there is some sense of spirituality when you take a major hike out on the Blue Ridge or just look out over the Blue Ridge. I'm sure you felt some of that while you were here. Oh, it's ri- it's such a rich, beautiful place that I don't think you can help yourself but feel a, a connection, a powerful spiritual connection to the Blue Ridge. Right. I have two friends visiting from Atlanta right now. I took them out today. And of course, you know, there's this ring of trees that was so gorgeous and beautiful. She said, what's that? I went, that's Asheville. <laughs> we still have trees. <laughs> well, that whole thing inspires the work here. When I first came here, which is in 2001, we were known strictly as a crafts community because of the proximity of Penland and Aramont and the John C. Campbell Folk School. But now when you go to Marquee, where the Artsville Gallery is, you'll see that there's more 2D work. The painters are here in great numbers as well. And if you walk through there very slowly, you will see lots of landscapes. You will feel some spiritual connection in some of that work. And what I'd like to do and have started doing is trying to take the issue with my eyes and enter with Ken Katara, who we did a podcast with, and Stephanie Moore, who we've done a podcast with, to begin to discuss what an exhibition might look like and some programming might look like around artists with visual impairment. There are people that have real problems, right? What we're talking about with COVID is the problems that the whole world is having, including people with disabilities. But then you add the disabilities on top of it. How do they find their way out of COVID, right? So what we're talking about right now, I mean, we're just at the early stages of this, but I'm excited about it because Artsville would help to produce this in conjunction with some other organizations and people around the state. All I know is my own personal issues with seeing, but there are many people who have lots more to say, and some of them are very fine artists. Ken himself, his art is based on Braille, and he works at the Industries for the Blind Teaching. Yeah, I've seen that work. It's really interesting work. I don't know if you've seen it, Scott, but it's tactile, as in Braille. It's very impressive work from a local Asheville artist. We love that. Absolutely. There's many levels to his work. And, you know, being a sighted man, the fact that he's taken on this issue and incorporated it into his work is quite something very special. And he's been on the podcast, by the way. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, Kit Katara has been on uh, Artsville. And, yes. And he made a gift for Scott and for me, which I keep right behind my desk. And it's Artsville in Braille with oh. using copper tacks. <laughs> so that's, once again, friendship, activism. Oh, it's fabulous. Yeah. How fabulous is that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's sort of, what I learned from the two of you, and I'm trying to put what I've learned into practice to make change. No response. Well, change takes practice, right? You're not going to get it right on the first time. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> I don't you gotta, know. You, know, you keep trying. And, yeah. you know, but that bumps into the previous 
conversation or the previous comment that Mary was mentioning about, you know, because she's been an activist for so long that it can be frustrating to feel like you're going backwards instead of forwards after all that work. You know, somebody once told me democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. You know, right. it, it's it's right. it's messy, it's inefficient, it's slow, but what's the alternative? And sadly, we have a feels like a contingent of people in America that feel like some sort of authoritarian approach to government would somehow be superior to government. They fail to realize that really what we're talking about are issues of human greed and when those things transcend all forms of government. Hopefully democracy is the greatest mitigator for that, but you got to work it, right? You got to be patient and it's a dance, two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, two steps back. I mean, yes, it is frustrating when you feel like all that work might've been in vain, but you got to think about the long arc of history. I mean, one of the things that I get frustrated when people talk about how bad things are. I mean, yes, things are bad now, and but the sky isn't falling. I mean, if you know a sense of history, you understand how, how bad things were in the 50s. Think about how bad things were in the 50s. We're not in the 50s anymore. There's so much to be thankful and grateful and hopeful for. We have to just keep working, and it's a battle. I'm not saying it's we're done. We're not. And I think, if anything, we've seen that the battle is still raging, and we still have to fight it. But we cannot give up hope or, or give up heart. Because they're committed. <laughs> you know, they're, they're committed. And so we have to be equally committed. Well, I think part of the frustrating thing for people who, who haven't done a lot of activism work, it's not one and done. You keep revisiting issues, whether you like it or not. They keep coming up because we have election cycles. So there are different personalities all the time. And we focus on different things Somebody will do a poll and today we've got to do this. Yesterday it was that. So you have to kind of do it with an open hand. You know, you can't squeeze it tightly. You just got to stand there, hold the tray and hope for the best. Because if you think you're going to fix it in one fell swoop, it's going to frustrate you no end. It's an ongoing process and your commitment will be tested over and over again. So giving up is often an option. You know, you're just like, oh, I want to give up. I'm tired of this. So keeping energized, I think, is the hardest part. And to energize myself, I hit a journal most mornings just to do a brain dump, get that crap out of my head, and then I can go forward and make art. I think journaling and writing has been a real boon to me, and it has been my go-to throughout my life whenever I've had an issue, whether it was arts-related, family-related, community-related I pick up a pen and write. That is a, it's very helpful. It's a helpful practice. But I'd like to go back to discussing this relative to womanhood a little bit again, because I heard a very interesting reporter and journalist this morning talking about what's going on in Iran with women who are uncovering their headdresses, you know, taking off their headdresses. And you talk about things that go on for a long time, okay? So women were told to cover themselves up in the 70s, late 70s, when the Shah was kicked out of his country. And interestingly enough, at the time, I was working with a project in downtown New Orleans, which had funding from the Shah of Iran. So when that all happened, you can imagine what happened to that project. Anyway, she said that it will be women who change Iran 
because they have been tapped down, cooped up, covered up for so many years and told what to do. And I think we should be mirroring that in this country because if people who don't want to hold on to our democracy take a closer look, that is what will happen here in this country. It's not hard to imagine that that could happen. We just have a very, let's say, conservative, to be nice, fascist-leaning woman elected as president of Italy. Okay, so there, Italy, we know, is a fairly loose culture in many ways. What kind of impact is that going to have on the women in Italy, for example? So I think it is important that we express this, express it loudly. And that is what that reporter said. Talk loudly, talk clearly. And if we want to maintain rights for women and rights for people with disabilities, rights for people who are new to this country, we are going to have to use every tool in our toolbox to express ourselves. And of course, that comes back to art. Art is a form of expression for us, as well as talking. I mean, I like to talk, but you know. Well, isn't talking an art form? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Talking is an art form. (laughs) Done well, I guess, right. Mary, I'm interested in your focus on comfort, shelter, and beauty. Could you delve a little deeper into that, and what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is, it's a little hard to describe at this point, only because, you know, we have kind of redefined our work and living space post the two-year lockdown. So this may not sound quite right at this moment in time, but the sentiment is still there. So Americans are known, you know, we work ourselves to death. We really do. That that productivity is a thing. They want more, faster, better from us all the time as American workers. And I think that we just don't have time to get our mental health straight. You know, we don't take the time. We, we're taking somebody to a soccer game. We have to get the groceries. Somebody has to do the laundry, blah, 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 blah. And you got to get to work. And now I understand that the commutes are back to an hour and two hours. So all of that is stressing the body. And I just think that through art, I know I can do that. I can get lost in a painting. I can just go somewhere. And there are plenty of psychological studies. That, so if you just think about a vacation, you feel better. So why not sit in front of a piece of art look at it, oh my God, this is soothing, or this stimulates something pleasant in me, that kind of thing, to give yourself a break. And that's what the comfort, shelter, and beauty is. It's all for you. It sounds like something nobody has time for right now. You must make time for it. You must. We cannot go on under all the stresses that we've been under. We can't. So in terms of your work, You are one of the best arts marketers I know. Mary's studio practice, she just does it all. Beyond her community work, I've been to her studio and I've watched her work. She's very directed. She's very quick. She knows where she's going. She's very comfortable with her tools and with the encaustic wax and the paints. She feels in charge there. It's interesting to watch. It's a sense 
that this is where I'm going to be accomplished. This is where my success is. And then she turns around and logs that out or writes a journal or does something that's grabbing attention all over the country. It's a different kind of activism. Scott, you and I had a conversation yesterday about changes in how we promote our different platforms, digital, virtual, how all this fits together. How do we reach our communities in new ways? I mean, none of us in this conversation are in our 20s. So there's been a learning curve for us on all of that. But Mary, you've made all that work for you. Can you give us a little insight as to how? Yeah, I'm laughing because I just botched up my whole Instagram page. So (laughs) thanks for the compliment. But no, I totally mucked it up. Well, there you go. It's just like politics. It doesn't. It doesn't. And by the way, I want to. I just want to. I just want to say something though before this. Before Mary responds, but thanks to my Beverly Hills plastic surgeon, I look twenty. So um, I just, you know, yeah, yes, 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 Louise, you're right. I I am not twenty, but thanks to Doctor Finkelstein, I look amazing. I look amazing. You do. So. You, do. you absolutely do. <laughs> Not bad for an 80-year-old man, Scott. <laughs> exactly. Okay, uh, Mary, take it away. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, I fall in and out of love with social media all the time because what, for me, it's a little bit of a time suck. I, I know probably everybody listening to this will know about that rabbit hole in social media. And I have to be very careful about that because I do love a shiny object. I mean, come on. So when I'm best in my social media is this, when I take a day, let's say Monday, and I put out the artwork that I see that I want to talk about, I write a story for each of my pieces, I have all the data about the piece, all the pictures at the ready, and I plan it. And I post it so that it gets posted on Monday, Tuesday, however I choose to post it. That is my best if I will take the time to do that. Other times I go, just like everybody else too, oh, drat. I need to post. So I'm good. And then I'm not. And then I'm good. And then I'm not. So I appreciate the confidence in me, but I'm not always consistent, which is supposedly the no-no in social media. But sometimes I'm just not feeling it. I'm sorry. I'm not. And I'm at a point where now I don't want to do those things that I don't like to do and don't have to do. I want to serve what Mary wants at this point around my studio, you know, there are other obligations I have, but around my studio, I think I should be the mistress of the universe. (laughs) You have a following, Mary. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've been doing this for a long time. You have a lot of people that buy your work. They go to your website, right? They go to your, get your blog, I guess. Tell me how you sort of organize this from the marketing end and to reach out to galleries where your work is shown around the country. We talked about journaling and we talked about writing. We talked about, I don't know if your blog goes out on a regular basis or not. I haven't blogged in a while. Social media. I mean, Scott and I try to stick to some kind of schedule each month as an organization. But as an individual artist, do you have schedules on all this or do you do it when you feel like it? 
And how do you think that you have effectively brought your audience home to roost by transactions, by actually selling your art? Well, first of all, selling art, I think, is that mutual exchange of pleasure. I give you art, you give me money, and we keep each other happy. That's just how it is. You are getting something you want, I get something I need. So that's what I think it is. And I go about it that way, that it is this mutual exchange that we are sharing with each other. I think for me, the most effective selling is face-to-face and one-on-one. I do a fair amount of commission work. It's an interesting thing because it kind of comes and goes in cycles. And that's a very personal relationship. I have to know a little bit about the person. I have to know a little bit about where the art is going, that sort of thing, for that to be successful. The other part is I just reach out. I love people. I really do. I know it sounds like I don't sometimes, but I do like people. And I reach out, particularly now. I just think that isolation was just a horrible thing. I know that many of us have suffered through it. And I see it every day in my friends. I mean, so I was getting ready to send something to somebody and I, somebody else's name popped up in my contact. I went, you know what? I haven't talked to her in a while. I just picked up the phone and called we had a beautiful conversation. It was short. It was lovely. We were so happy to talk to each other. So please, you know, it's reaching out and having a human connection with somebody. How do you reach out internationally? So Mary, you back in pre-Asheville days, right, you were involved in starting a group out in Marin for Mm -hmm. encaustic artists. And now it's called International Encaustic Artists. Scott, not real art. Every time you do a podcast, you're building your international art markets. I would love to hear a little bit about this boundary that is perhaps just a boundary visually, but crossing lines between countries and cultures. Because the more we talk about art and community and activism globally, the more chance we have to connect and make the world better. Hmm. Uh, Well, for one thing, the Encaustic Art Group, let me just back up a little bit and say about that, because that was pretty phenomenal. We were on the West Coast and several of us were getting together. Many people were working in Encaustic, but not so many as now. And we decided we would do demos for each other just to teach each other how to do this. And then, I don't know, there were six, eight, I can't remember exactly, but a small group. We had a wonderful time together. We loved it. We went, hey, we should tell everybody else. So we just sent out some feelers. Not much, you know, call this friend, that friend. And this was early internet days. We didn't have all the social media. I don't think there was Facebook at that point. And the next meeting, we had 60 people showed up. We were absolutely flabbergasted. And from that, that we then called it West Coast Encaustic Artists because that's who it was. You know, we were actually Upper West Coast Encaustic Artists. And it has grown into something now called the same group, the International Encaustic Artists. And that's just as time, it's word of mouth. It's been the conferences that we had, the teaching things that we did. We put shows up because people were not familiar with that kind of art at that point. And interestingly enough about encaustic art, it is female dominated. There are many more female encaustic art painters than there are guys. And it's just a, I don't know if it's because we were all in there organizing early on or what, but it's a thing. Did I answer all the questions? Yeah, well, it's it's an interesting topic and point because connecting it a little bit to politics. I mean, the old saying about all politics are local, 
art largely in the art world is largely localized. It's a hugely fragmented landscape, you know, the art world. And, you know, unless you're in the blue chip art world, first world of art, and you're trading, your dealers are selling internationally, globally. Okay, fine. I mean, that's a very small world, but, you know, the 0.001% of millionaires and billionaires. That's where I think you start to have more of a global kind of connection. But for most artists in most places, I mean, it's a very local or regional kind of existence and connecting the dots and bringing some cohesion to a fragmented landscape, I think is a huge opportunity moving forward. And if you really, you know, so many people like to talk about democratizing art, you're not really, in my view, you're not going to democratize Jack unless you figure out a media model that kind of becomes a hub for people to learn and share stories about art and creativity and design and the art world and so and you know if you're a sports fan you can go to ESPN if you're a news junkie you can go to CNN if you're a, a reality a TV junkie you can stream it on Discovery Plus or something if you're an, a creative uh, or arts enthusiast artist a creative professional creative enthusiast where do you go to get your stories to get your entertainment to get your content i believe that the arts really won't be democratized until this issue is resolved and you have a media uh, uh, industry that supports the creative economy in a way because it's the the blue chip art world has no incentive they're fine to just keep doing what they're doing like right. they're fine they, they're not broken they can just keep doing what they're doing but the mass market for art by the way there is no mass market for art and we need to nurture a mass market for art if we're going to democratize the arts and connect artists nationally, internationally, and give artists a better living, because artists are left to their own devices, trying to build an audience, trying to fan the flames via social media and what have you. And, and I think consumers need to be educated, right? I mean, we know more about our mortgages as consumers than we know about buying art. And why is that? And I think, you know, the art world's done a great job of intimidating people. It's like, oh, no, 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 you, you, didn't, you don't know art. We know art. Talk to us. That's a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> you know, I know what I like. I know my favorite color is red. Why can't I go uh, find some original art that speaks to me that beautifies my life and my home? Who cares about it being an economic upside? That's the narrative. It's like, oh, well, you want to collect art because you want it to be a, it's an economic asset that's going to appreciate in value over time. Fuck that, too. That's bullshit. It's a horrible investment. You want to buy art because you love it and it makes you happy. And by the way, it supports the local economy because you're supporting small business because that artist is a small business. I mean, am I ranting? Yes, <laughs> yes. You know, but the rant is absolutely correct, Scott. Absolutely correct. We have made it a little bit inaccessible in the past, and we know that those forces are just trying to protect their own needs. They don't care about us. So, making art available and allowing people to trust their own taste—that's okay. If you like it and I don't, and somebody will say that to me, and I'm very careful to make sure that somebody is comfortable enough to say to me, "Mary, I just don't like that piece." And here's what I say. I get it. Chocolate and vanilla. You know, you don't like chocolate. You like vanilla. It's okay with me. And tell me the truth. It's so much better because I want you to be happy when you have that piece of art in your space. Well, and it's so true because I mean, you know, at the end of the day, the so-called home decor wall print industry, you know, these are the mass produced prints that people buy at Target or Bed Bath & Beyond or whatever the store is. That's a $6 billion category. 
And it's a $6 billion category because we've convinced people that they don't know how to buy art from a real artist at a local studio. So they have to go to Target and buy a print, a mass produced print for a hundred bucks or whatever it is. And at the end of the day, don't tell me that one to 5% of those people spending $6 billion on mass produced crap wouldn't be willing to trade up and spend a few hundred dollars or thousand dollars or whatever with a local artist. Cause we all know that the majority of it's not a supply issue. It's a demand issue. I mean, there's plenty of art, original art price between a hundred bucks and 5,000 bucks. Matter of fact, that's where most of it is. <laughs> and you know, if people only felt empowered to go to an artist studio, knock on the door, say hello and look around. Right. And most of the time, I'm sure there are exceptions to this, but most artists would welcome you in and help you. They would educate you about the work. They would educate you about how you're about to spend your money. They would educate you on trusting yourself. I think if you made yourself available to an artist, you would be surprised what you would gain from that. 100%. 100%. Well, I have a slightly different viewpoint about where this might go because what we're selling right now a lot of the artists, Mary's is certainly more of a mid-level artist, mid-level in museum talk or speak. She's not Leonardo yet <laughs> or Van Gogh. So you're just a little <laughs> below that. Oh, right? wait, Mary, you're not? Okay, get, okay. why, 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 get why are we podcast, talking please. to you? What are you doing? Why, why are you I'm in here? Okay. <laughs> so, but, but here's the Here's the thing. We This is what we're focusing in on, because what you're talking about is education. And when you talk about education, you're talking marketing. And what is it that artists hate to do the most? Marketing. Well, wait, just because, you know, that's just ridiculous. That is so ridiculous because artists think that that's a soul sucking thing. And it's not. If you're making art, you have a responsibility to put it out there, too. And if you can't market your own work, then you need to very seriously think about why you're making art because your commitment is not there. And I know those are strong terms, but it's true. If I'm going to make the art, it is my job to make sure that it finds a home. Well, I'll see you and raise you one, Mary, because I've said many times that you cannot, I don't think an artist has the right to call themselves a professional artist if they don't understand their business, how it works, how to market and sell their product, how to accurately price, how to accurately invoice, how to collect, you know what I mean? All those things. If you're a professional, act like one, understand how business works. Absolutely. Well, that's exactly why we run our gallery the way we do. There's minimum financial buy-in and minimal commissions, which is on behalf of Marquee, where our gallery is located. But what I think is happening is for the artists who are willing to do it, they are reaching out internationally because they put little shops on their site, okay? And then they go to YouTube or Etsy or someplace like that that does have an international audience. And so they feel like that is the reach, the demos that they do on YouTube, that's a whole different kind of model, marketing model for them. But the thing that motivated was let's sell first and then talk about our work later. Because when you go on those sites, it's an image and a price tag. Most of them are not very good about 
really well, talking my, about my whole work. my whole opinion about some of these platforms and Louise, I'm looking at the clock here. I don't want you to be late for your next hot date, but the point is is that these platforms are great at aggregating the supply. So if you're Etsy, you're great at giving people an opportunity to open a store. But Etsy doesn't really, as I understand it, some of these platforms don't really help you market that store. Like it's kind of up to you to drive traffic. And I feel like these platforms could be far more helpful in driving traffic to these stores because they know the back end, they know SEO better than an artist. And so I think a lot of times artists get jacked up thinking like, oh, this is a silver bullet. I'm going to open a store on Etsy and money's going to flow in. Reality is then suddenly you have to become a digital marketer. And you and I both know digital marketing is a specialty unto itself. And so what's the compromise? I mean, I'm trying to make art here and now I've got to be a digital marketer. And so I don't care what business you're in these days. By the way, this transcends art. I mean, no matter what business you're in these days, this is a struggle to market because some would argue it's the best, easiest time to market than ever. And some would argue it's probably more challenging now more than ever to market because we have so many more channels. People are distracted. It's very hard to get people's attention. Well, part of the struggle I've had trying to upgrade, if you will, my Instagram account is the audio stuff. I want to tell the story that I write with each painting. However, people just scroll through without the sound on. So what's the point? And if I put it up with the captions, then it's over the art. So there are all kinds of challenges in doing this, and you have to make choices. It's all about choices that you make and what you do. And I've kind of settled on showing my work in different rooms so people can get an idea how it'll look in different spaces, just to kind of take a little pressure off for people. Well, I will say for my goal, I do like to do things in a different way. I would like to expose people to the artists here in Asheville and in Western North Carolina in some unique ways that will bring us together. So under an umbrella, more than a shop, more than a program, more than just educating people about art, but sort of bringing it all together under some kind of technical or virtual umbrella. And that's where my thoughts are right now. But the other thing is, I want our artists to sell all over the world. And when I go to Etsy, I usually go to sites that are looking for things that are Japanese, you know, Oriental, Japanese, Asian, something like that, because that's my vibe is I like fabrics and textures and colors that emanate from other worlds. So that's just my thing. But I think if we could figure this all out, people wouldn't have to come to Asheville to buy our art. We could educate them about our art and artists, and they could buy it online. Well, and that's a classic challenge, right? I mean, I was in Jackson Hole, Wyoming last summer and was amazed at some of the art and artists that I was seeing there in the local galleries. And I just thought to myself, how are these people being marketed to folks when they're not on vacation in Jackson Hole? You know, and that's the thing. How do you make it a 365? kind of opportunity versus just, oh, I'm on holiday and I just stumbled into this place and I'm going to buy this thing and take it home because it reminds me of my holiday. Well, Artsville just launched a great podcast from Kate Pet of Thrive, which is a community organization here trying to tackle the issues that artists are having with sustainable tourism. 
because the culture here has so much pressure on our artists can't find housing. Their studio rents are going up. All of those things, we're not the first city by any means to deal with this. But that organization, Thrive, has some pretty good ideas about how to bring people to the table. And my take on it is let's find a way to be innovative and imaginative and find ways that people can buy our art without actually having to come here. So Amen. that's an interesting challenge. <laughs> Amen, sister. Yeah. So I've said more than my two cents, and now I have to go to the gallery and meet a new artist. <laughs> <laughs> that's your next hot date. That's right. <laughs> Are you cheating on us, uh, Louise? Oh, she is. She's cheating with some other artist. <laughs> oh, oh, the best is, and then I have dinner at a new restaurant in town called Leo's House of Thirst. It's fabulous. Really? Well, I don't know about my thirst, but my grandson's Leo, so I'm obliged to go. There's that. (laughs) Excellent. Well, Mary Farmer, thanks so much for sitting down with Louise and I today on Artsville. You are truly a gift, and we're so grateful for your friendship and your artistry. I am grateful for your friendship as well, and I thank you for having me here. I really, really appreciate it. We actually get to see each other when we record these, y'all, so it's good to see you. (laughs) And even better to talk with you. Excellent. Well, more to come. Thanks, Mary, for being with us. It was a pleasure. Be well. See you guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Artsville Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share it with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Artsville is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles in partnership with Sand Hill Artist Collective in Asheville, North Carolina. Our theme music was created by Dan Ubik and his team at Danube Productions. Artsville is edited by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Artsville. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating American contemporary arts and crafts from Asheville and beyond. Artsville. Artsville, the happening town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, from Asheville town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, feeling mountain high and inspired in North Carolina. That's where you'll find us, amazing artists and designers.